few couples, if any, can escape the inevitable financial conflicts that will arise from time to time in every marriage. And the reason for it is, uh, the reason for this conflict, I figured out it's pretty simple when you get down to it. It's, it's quite simple. Since opposites attract, there it is. <laughs> There's going to be differences of opinion as to how money should be earned, should be spent, and how it should be saved. The typical marriage consists of, now tell me if you can't relate to this, one of the partners that throws money around like bird seed at the park, and the other tosses nickels around like manhole covers. You know what I'm saying? Real deep pockets, but real short arms. It's kind of like that's the way that it is. That's the typical marriage. There's, I mean, and the reason for it's simple. Opposites attract. And so what we need to understand, you know, there's going to be one of the partners, one mate that sees the value of sentiment and tradition and emotions and feelings and, and, and sees all of that as being a very important part of life. And the other partner looks at things kind of like, how does it affect the bottom line? And I ran across an internal private memo this week, I think that illustrates what I'm trying to say. There's always two ways to look at life. In this particular memo, let's keep it confidential because none of us should hear what I'm about to read. But I just couldn't bear the burden of knowing this information myself without sharing it with you. It has to do with restructuring plans at the North Pole critical. The recent announcement that Donner and Blitzen have elected to take the early reindeer retirement package has triggered a good deal of concern about whether they'll be replaced and about other restructuring decisions that are taking place at the North Pole, Inc. Streamlining was appropriate in view of the reality that the North Pole no longer dominates the season's gift distribution business. Home shopping channels and mail order catalogs have diminished Santa's market share, and he cannot sit idly by and permit further erosion of the profit picture. The reindeer downsizing was made possible through the purchase of a late model Japanese sled for the CEO's annual trip. Improved productivity from Dasher and Dancer, who summered at Harvard Business School, is anticipated and should take up the slack with no discernible loss of service. Reduction in reindeer will also lessen airborne environmental emissions for which the North Pole has been cited and received unfavorable press as of recent date. I am pleased also to inform you and yours that Rudolph's Rural will not be disturbed. Tradition still counts for something here at the North Pole. Management denies in the strongest possible language the earlier leak that Rudolph's nose got that way not from the cold, but from substance abuse. <laughs> Calling Rudolph, quote, a lush who was, in, was into the sauce and never did pull a share of the load was an unfortunate comment made by one of Santa's helpers and taken out of context at a time of year when he is known to be under executive stress. As a further restructuring, today's global challenges require the North Pole to continue to look for better, more competitive steps and effective immediately. The following economic or economy measures are to take place in the 12 days of Christmas subsidiary. The partridge will be retained, but the pear tree never turned out to be the cash crop forecasted. It will be replaced by a plastic hanging plant providing considerable savings and maintenance. Well, the two turtle doves represent a redundancy that is simply not cost-effective. In addition, their romance during working hours could no longer be condoned. Their positions are now eliminated. The three French hens will remain intact. After all, everybody loves the French. The four calling birds were replaced by an automated voicemail system. But it does have a call waiting option. An analysis is underway to determine who the birds have been calling, how often, and how long they've been talking during company hours. 
The five golden rings have been put on hold by the board of directors. Maintaining a portfolio based on one commodity could have negative implications for institutional investors. Diversification into other precious metals as well as a mix of T-bills and high technology stocks appear to be in order at this time. The sixth Gisa Lane constitutes a luxury which no longer can be afforded. It has been long felt that the production rate of one egg per goose per day is an example of the decline in productivity. Three geese will be let go, and an upgrading in the selection procedure by personnel will assure management from now on on every goose it gets will be a good one. The seven swans of swimming is obviously a number chosen in better times. The function is primarily decorative, therefore mechanical swans are now in order. Current swans will be retrained to learn some new strokes and therefore enhance their outplacement. As you know, the eight maids of milking concept has been under heavy scrutiny by the EEOC. Male-female balance in the workforce is now being sought. The more militant maids consider this a dead-end job with no upward mobility. Automation of the process may permit the maids to try a mending, a mentoring, and a mulching. Nine ladies dancing has always been an odd number. This function will be phased out as individuals grow older and can no longer keep up with the steps. Ten lords of leaping is overkill. The high cost of lords plus the expense of international air travel prompted the compensation committee to suggest replacing this group with ten out-of-work congressmen. <laughs> While leaping may be somewhat sacrificed, the savings are significant because we expect an oversupply of unemployed congressmen this year. There we go. Eleven pipers piping and twelve drummers drumming is a simple case of the band just getting too big. Substitution with a string quartet, a cutback on new music, and no uniforms will produce savings, which will drop right down to the bottom line. We can expect a substantial reduction in assorted people, fowl, animals, and other expenses. Though incomplete studies indicate that stretching deliveries over 12 days is inefficient, if we can just drop ship them all in one day, service levels will be improved. Regarding the lawsuit filed by the Attorneys Association seeking expansion to include the legal profession, such as 13 lawyers assuing... Um, <laughs> That action is still pending. <laughs> Lastly, it is not beyond consideration that deeper cuts may be necessary in the future to stay competitive. Should that happen, the board will request management to scrutinize the Snow White division to see if seven dwarfs is really the right number. You know, you run into stuff like this, and the world consists of people who sit down and they think of things like this <laughs> on a daily basis. I like a cartoon I saw recently. It kind of emphasizes to some degree what I've been trying to share, and that is there's a, there's a mother and their father, and they're sitting at a dining room table, and it looks like it's a, obviously some type of family conference, and they've got six little children, probably raging the age of 3 to 13. And the dad's talking to the children, and he says, well, you know, your mom and I have been discussing things that have been going on recently, and through this prolonged economic downturn that we've been experiencing as a family, we've decided we're going to have to let two of you go. Every marriage consists of one who's always concerned about the bottom line and the other that doesn't lose sight of humanity in the process. And so as a result, those differences are going to come to play at some point. And it's critical that we understand that because of those differences, feelings of hostility and bitterness and anger and resentment could arise simply because we see life differently. And every marriage has got to get to the point of understanding that we are different, we need to be able to communicate those differences and do it in a way where we eliminate the anger, we eliminate the resentment, we eliminate the hostility, we eliminate the defensiveness, we eliminate all the bitterness that goes along with it and understand that, you know what, you're on the same team trying to accomplish the same things, you just see things a little bit differently. 
And that, that healthy conflict, and that's exactly what it is, it's a healthy conflict, will produce a balance in your relationship that'll cause you to grow together as a couple and also as a family and move in a more positive direction. Those problems must be dealt with. They will not go away. So today we're going to take a look at the benefit of facing money problems. Facing money problems. There are at least four problems that I want to discuss with you today as we take a look at this particular subject. And like all causes of conflict, these problems must be dealt with in order to achieve a successful and rewarding relationship together. And uh, as you'll see, they are very practical, they're very relevant to what all of us go through, and they're things that need to be addressed. So we'll take a look at them, and we'll go through them one at a time. But there's four common problems. And also, you know, just, just as a, an added insight, these problems are going to affect you whether you're married or single. So it's really applicable to every one of us. They're common problems uh, that all of us have to face as far as money issues are concerned. And we'll take a look at them. And the first one is a simple problem or question of ownership. The first problem is that of ownership. And I think I can illustrate it better by sharing a story with you that's a true story. We had a couple that was in uh, one of our Bible studies that were having, they're in the midst of uh, a marital conflict concerning finances. Call it a, a squabble, call it a quarrel, call it a contention, call it a difference of opinion, call it an argument, call it a knockdown, drag out, blow out fight. You call it whatever you want to call it. Whatever will help you to relate to it as they occur at your particular residence. They were in the midst of a disagreement over finances, so they called and said, can we come over and talk to you? I said, well, sure. And so they came over and um, basically they, they had run across for the first time in their young marriage the problem of trying to decide who to buy presents for at birthdays and uh, during Christmas, particularly this time of year, who do we buy for, who don't we buy for, how much money do we spend on, uh, uh, on whom, and, uh, and so they got into a little bit of disagreement over that. Now obviously, this only occurs during the youth of a marriage, and as I look out, I see some of you who are in more of the what? Yeah, the, the twilight of, the, of a marriage. I, I'll stick with this one here, David. The, 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 the mature aspect, or later on in years, you know. And, uh, and so this probably doesn't occur, but, but they, they were struggling with it. So they were having a little bit of conflict. And so this was, this was here, his response. He said, you know, my parents were always there for me throughout my whole career. When I was playing ball in high school and in college, and now that I'm playing in the pros and for the last several years, I mean, my folks were always there. They were very supportive. They, they, they took care of me. Um, you know, and, and I just feel that it's my responsibility, and I want to, to pay them back. And so before I was married, you know, it, it wasn't a big deal for me to go out and spend $500, $1,000 on a birthday gift for my mom or something for my dad. And, and I just went out, and I bought them whatever I want, whenever I wanted to. Because I just felt like, you know, that's the least I could do for everything they've done for me. And then he goes like this. But now that we're married, she, and, he, and that's always a bad sign, by the way. Really, you know, it's like, and when you, when you go, but now she thinks we should discuss it. Not only discuss it, but she thinks that, well, if we're going to buy my parents something like that, then we should buy her parents something like that. And then, you know how you want to drag somebody else in the middle of something like this? He looks at me and says, isn't that the dumbest thing you ever heard? 
And I'm like, okay, well, let's see. What was the problem? Problem was a common problem, and it has to do with an attitude of ownership. Because as we began to discuss it a little more, he went on to say this. He said, well, you know what? I just feel like, you know what? It's my money. I earn it. I can do anything I want with it. And anyway, all she does is just stay at home with the baby. Ooh, the north wind, the chilly breeze came blowing through the house at that particular time. It got real frosty in there. And it was like, uh-oh, what's the problem that this guy was having? A common problem that many people have, and it has to do with an attitude of ownership. It's my money, and I'll do with it as I please. You know what's interesting to me is watch children growing up. Watch them when they're smaller. They have a problem with something, and it's called the mine syndrome. That's mine. That's my doll. That's my truck. That's my toy. That's my book. That's my crayon. That's my paint. That's mine. And then they go run through that. Dad, Mom, she, he took my fill-in-the-blank. And what, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm listening to all this, and, and you know, and I'm hearing the things that this guy's saying, and, and I'm, I'm feeling the tension, I'm seeing it, and the first thing I'm thinking about is the the cartoon, the Jetsons. Remember the Jetsons? Remember the dog? What was the dog's name? Astro. There you go, Astro. And any time that something bad happened and George did something stupid, Astro had a great line. He'd always go like this: "Rut roll, George." And every time I heard him say something like, well, that's my money, I do what I want, though, I'm just thinking of um, Astro going, ruh-roh, George. Whoa, ruh-roh. Because he had, I mean, here's a guy that it was like, you know, you're sitting there, do you ever see the movie uh, Father of the Bride, uh, one and two or whatever? Remember how they always did those flashbacks? Like he'd be talking to his daughter and all of a sudden she'd be a little girl shooting basketball. And if you haven't seen it, you know, spend a couple of bucks, it's a good movie. You know, break down, call it your date night or something, all right? Uh, in marriage series, you know what I'm saying. Anyway, you know, hey, buddy, take your wife out and go see a good movie sometime. You know, get out of the house. Um, where was I? <laughs> ah, flashback. Oh, having a flashback. There we go. Okay. All right. But anyway, so I'm, I'm, I'm listening to this guy talk, and, and all I can picture is this little boy running around saying, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. I want to do what I want with it. It's mine. And she's sitting there like, well, wait a minute now. There's a new sheriff in town. We got some things to discuss. That may be how you used to do things, but if you don't enjoy this conflict we're having, we're going to have to work this out. See, you know what's interesting? An attitude of mine or ownership is a fascinating thing. You know, in communism, they try to promote the fact that the state owns everything. And if you get anything, you're lucky, and that's the way we're going to decide it's going to be handed out. In capitalism, we believe in an individual's right to own property. But the Bible has something totally unique to say about this whole attitude of ownership. See, Christianity promotes the idea that, you know what? God owns everything. God owns it all. And in Psalm 24, 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains, the world and even those who dwell in it, that God owns everything. There was a fundamental mistake in this gentleman's thinking when it came down to, well, it's my money and I'll do with it as I please. There was a problem in his understanding that it isn't his money 
It's God's money. And God owns it all. And see, our attitude of what the Bible says of stewardship or management will totally change our whole perception of money. If we understand that everything is God's, and he gives to us as he wishes to distribute it, and gives us the responsibility as, as well of managing his resources, it changes the whole attitude of, well, it's mine and I'll do whatever I want with it. Let me give you an example. If you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. The nation of Israel were, were raising funds, were basically raising building materials and funds for the rebuilding of a temple. And they were going to build God a temple where the people of Israel could go to worship God. And so they were raising all of these funds and they were generating building materials and all the rest of the stuff. And in 1 Chronicles 29, starting with verse 11, we pick up some tremendous insight as to the problem of ownership. And that is this. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11, we read this. Thine, O Lord, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth Thine is the dominion, O Lord, and thou dost exalt thyself as head over all of it. Both riches and honor come from thee, and thou dost rule over all. And in thy hand is power and might, and it lies in thy hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and we praise thy glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as all of this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have, we have given thee. For we are sojourners before thee, and tenants as all of our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. O Lord our God, all of this abundance that we have provided to build thee a house for thy holy name, it is from your hand, and it is all yours. What a tremendous insight that he's saying. He's saying, you know what, God, this is so silly of us to sit here and make a big deal about how much money we raised and all of this stuff that we're giving to you to build you a temple that we can come to worship you when it's all yours anyway. Isn't that stupid how we are sometimes? Isn't it amazing how, how, how short-sighted we are? It's like, oh, we got all whipped up in a frenzy about, oh, what an offering that we took up. And we're going to give it to God and use it for God's glory and His purposes and all that kind of stuff. And, it, and it's like, all of a sudden it dawns on you, you know what? What did I do? I gave back to God what was His. And I'm getting all excited about how generous I am. And what a great guy that I am. And what a great gal that I am. And what a great church that we are. what a great nation that we are. And aren't we the most generous people on the face of the earth that we can give back to somebody something that was theirs anyway? Hello. Think about this. this. This whole attitude of ownership is ridiculous when it causes conflict in marriages. It doesn't make any sense. It's foolishness. You know, if you, think, if, if you believe the things that you have belong to God, you're going to see yourself in a whole different light. You're going to see the blessings of God totally different than you ever had them before. And when you lose something or something's stolen from you or, or something's taken from you, then you're th sitting there thinking, you know what, though? It's not mine anyway. It's God's. We've got an attitude in our business that if somebody doesn't want to pay their bills, we'll do everything that we can legally and morally to collect whatever debt it is that's owed to us. But the bottom line of all of it is this. God, if you don't want your money back, then you don't want it back. That's it, in a nutshell. You know what's going on. They're not stealing from me or from my partner. They're not stealing from my family or, or his family. They're not stealing from us. They're stealing from God. 
It's his. And we're just managers responsible to manage what he's entrusted to us. Think how foolish we are sometimes when we think that we own it. It's my money. Really? That'd be like going into a bank. Okay, it's Christmas. You want to go in the bank and take out some money to do some Christmas shopping. You go in the bank, you go up to the teller and say, hey, I'd like $1,000 to take out for Christmas shopping. And the bank manager says, you can't have it. Why not? Because it's my money. It's what? It's my money. It's in my bank. I'm watching. It's mine. What are you, a lunatic? It's my money. We put it in there. Now it's mine now. I got it. Can you imagine this? That's how some of us are. I mean, you know, we got this, we're like little kids still. We haven't got past that. It's my doll. It's my crayons. It's my this or that. It's my money. This guy, this man, this, this, this grown man was sitting in a room saying to his wife, it's mine and I'll do anything I want with it. And he's going, what in the world? But see, most of us have got beyond that. Right? Let me just share something with you. When a couple gets married, the word mine must change to ours under the overall conviction that everything is his. Hers. <laughs> now, I still believe in the masculine pronoun that God is masculine from the sense that it's his. She may think it's hers, but it's still his. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Mine you don't talk that way anymore. If you're married, you relinquish the right to say mine. And even if you're single, understand this principle, it's not yours anyway. It's my money, I'll do what I want. No, it's God's money, and you'll do what's right before God. See, this guy needed to understand and grasp a very simple problem, it's a common problem. When he got married, it was no longer mine, it's ours because all of it is God's. So we must communicate that. We must understand that. You know, what's interesting to me, and, and I'm just going to kind of throw out some punches and take it for what it's worth, but I believe that any marriage that purposefully divides resources into those are mine and those are yours, and I'll do what I want with this, and you do what you want with that. And we're not going to talk about it. No questions asked. You do what you want to do. I believe that you're in, nothing, in for nothing but trouble. Any business that's going to work and work functionally and be successful, just because I take care of the bills as part of my responsibility in our business, my partner has every right to see who we're paying, when we're paying, what money we receive. The books are always open. Go through it any time that you want. If I had an attitude that said, well, that's my job, I'll do that, it's none of your business, then we're in for a lot of trouble. We must have communication. We must have accountability. There must be mutual decision as to who we pay, when we pay, uh, who owes us money, what we should do to try to collect that money. Those are things that we have to decide together if we're going to be successful in business. There's no secrets there. The CEO of any major corporation that has to answer and be accountable to shareholders must give that same type of report, saying this is what we decided to do with your money because you own the company. You're the shareholders, though there may be some who make those fiduciary responsibilities and have the duties of making decisions. Hey, the bottom line is that there's accountability. We need to recognize and understand something that's very critical and very important. 
If you are married, there can be no secrets as to where money is being raised, how it's being generated, where it's being spent, and what's being done with it. That must be an, you must be an open book. Because I'll tell you what it does, and we'll talk about it in the month of January, but it eliminates anyone doing anything that's going to be detrimental or harmful to their marriage by doing things with resources in ways that aren't good for the marriage. You can't have those kind of secrets. You cannot do that. Now, I'm not saying you can't have your own accounts, but you know what? My wife and I, she has a checking account, I have a checking account. But her checking account is to be used for specific items as far as putting a budget together and things like that. Now, she knows what those areas are, and that's her responsibility, and that's what she does. But it's not a matter of, well, it's none of your business what I do with the money that I have. Oh, no, not at all. In fact, it is my business. If we're partners for life, then it's, it's very much my business, and it's very much her business what I do with what, any money that goes out of any account that I have. See, it's critical that we understand that. You know, what's, what's amazing, you know, 20-some years ago when we got married, I remember distinctly one of the most interesting, and, I, and it was di maybe difficult to some degree, but I think more, it was more strange than anything else, was when we got married, taking money that I had saved from the time I was a little kid and had generated, you know, a meager bank account, which wasn't much, but it was everything that I had saved, and taking that money and putting it into an account with both of our names on it. It was a very simple act, but it had very profound implications for me because what it was saying was, you know what, Chuck? Don't ever forget this. Everything that you had is now yours together. There's no more mine. It all becomes ours. Man, you know what? And it's difficult sometimes, isn't it? It's difficult. You know, I deal with guys who have a lot of money. They've made a lot of money playing professional sports. And one of the most difficult things they ever had to do was take millions of dollars that they had in an account and add somebody else's name to it. You know, my meager little savings was nothing in, in comparison to what they have to struggle with. But the reality of all of it is this. Hey, you know what? If you're going to be a partner and a partner for life, then it's all, it all becomes ours now because it's all God's anyway. I have a friend who's a financial planner and counselor, and he said, you know, what's fascinating is the, the, the ongoing conflict that he deals with in marriages where couples try to separate their assets. These are mine, those are his. And a lot of times it's in second and third marriages because they already got burned once, you know, and they don't have to go through it all again. So what they're doing is they're setting themselves up, and this is the logic and the reasoning behind all of it. And, then, you know, and, and in man's eyes it always makes sense, but God says there's a way that seems right to men, but it always ends in destruction. But th their rationale is simply this. Well, you know what? It makes it a lot cleaner to keep it divided because if anything it should ever happen, it's cleanly identifiable. You know, and his counsel to them is the same counsel that I'll give you, and that's simply this. You know what? I mean, why would a marriage like that fail anyway? Gee, I wonder why. Because they don't trust each other from the very beginning. You're walking into a relationship saying, hey, you know what, we're keeping everything separate because this thing may not work out, and if it doesn't work out, let's keep it clean so we can walk away from it. No harm, no foul, we'll move on with our life. And you sit there, and when that, when that marriage ends up falling apart, and they say, well, see, we told you it was going to. And you look at them and say, well, no wonder you planned for it for years. Why don't you take the simple step of faith and put everything together and recognize that it's no longer you and him, but it's the two of you together. It's ours, and now we're accountable before God for what he gives us jointly together. 
Regardless of which person is, quote, making the money or how much, mine has to change to ours under the overall conviction that everything is God's anyway. There's got to be accountability. There's got to be communication. There's got to be an understanding and an agreement as to how money is earned and where it is spent and how it's supposed to be saved. You've got to talk about it. There's got to be confrontation. Don't forget, it needs to be gentle, but you have to talk about it. Those problems do not go away and they don't resolve themselves on their own. It's got to be discussed. And it's really simple, isn't it? Everything belongs to God, so what's the big deal? Second problem is this, the problem of security. And it's a problem that every one of us have to face. If you want to eliminate a potential conflict area in your marriage and truly enjoy one another, let me suggest this. And, you know, sometimes they say, don't ever say never, and don't always say always, you know, eliminate that. But I want to tell you something. This is one of those never phrases that will never change. Never place your sense of security in what you possess. Never place your sense of security in what you possess. Too many of us too often have the problem of feeling secure by what we own, by the size of our bank account, by the size of our checking account, by the salaries that we're making, by the job that we're holding down, by our retirement fund, by our investments, our financial investments, by all this stuff. And man, we feel secure when it reaches a certain level. But let me just tell you something. Never, ever put your sense of security in what you possess. Let me give you a good reason for it. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6. Listen to the counsel of verse 7, and we'll go through this section as we go throughout these particular sessions on finance. But in this particular one, I want to look at 1 Corinthians, I mean 1 Timothy 6, look at verse 7. God says, you know what? For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take so we cannot take anything out of it either. We've brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. A couple of weeks ago, Linda and I went to a funeral for a neighbor of ours um, who passed away. And you know, and, and the thing that that if you could say the thing that you enjoy about a funeral, that would seem almost a little bit cruel and sadistic. But it's not so much what I enjoy of it. But I think that. One of the things that funerals always do is really smack you right back into a reality perspective that you tend to miss when you're busy doing things on an ongoing basis. So you sit there and you watch this, you know, you watch this uh, coffin, you know, going to be put into the ground, and you realize, you know what, there's, there's nothing more profound than this truth. We've brought nothing into the world. We're going to go out with what we came in with. We can't take anything out. And yet so many of us put a sense of security in the things that we can't hold on to. And we don't try to acquire the things that we can never lose. We've got everything backwards and we're mistaken about it. In verse 17, God says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all the things to enjoy. Riches cannot bring you happiness. Riches can't bring you a sense of security. Only God can do that. He said, teach people because it's something that we need to learn. Instruct those who are rich in this world not to be conceited in what they have, not to fix their security on those things that they're not going to be able to take with them. 
but to put their hope and their trust and their security in God who will never let us down. Too many marriages start falling apart because we, we, you know, they're undermined by the sense of security that, hey, as long as business is going good and as long as we've got money in our account, as long as we've got a nice house to live in and nice cars to drive and nice clothes to wear, and as long as we've got all these things together, you know what? Hey, then we're going to make it. We're going to be okay. And in just one moment, in an instant of time, everything that you've saved for and everything that you've earned and all these things that you've put your security in can be wiped out in a second. And we are so naive in our country because we have not experienced the things that are going on on a regular basis around the world, but you can have a government step in tomorrow and seize every asset and every bank account, and you can have a dictator that takes power and says, everything's mine now! And it's all gone, and all your security is in that, that which you cannot hold on to anyway. And marriages start to fall apart because somebody loses their job or they don't have as much money as they used to and they can't go out and buy the things they did. And all of a sudden the woman's not happy or the guy's not happy with what's going on and it's like, you know what, I need to find somebody else to take care of all these things. And God's saying, don't you see yet? Your security can't be in these things. We had a friend that, uh, we had a friend, in fact, he, he was here last week with his wife. And we went out to lunch after church because they had gone through some very difficult times financially. And it was all because of a simple diagnosis that he had. He was feeling some pain. He went to the doctors and they found cancer. And in one moment in time, everything that they had saved for to put a down payment on a house, everything that they had had in their bank accounts, everything that they had worked so hard for, in one simple moment was gone. And once they met all the deductibles and the bills kept running on and on and on and on, they realized one thing. You know what? The only thing that sustained us through all of this wasn't how much money we had in the bank, wasn't the kind of job that I had, wasn't the cars that we drove, wasn't the clothes on our back, wasn't all the stuff and things of the world. The only thing that sustained us through all of this is, number one, our faith and trust in God, that God knows what's best and he's in it, he's involved in the whole process, and we don't know where it's heading, but we know that God's in it, and our commitment to one another. That's it. That's what it all boiled down to. As simple as that is and as profound as it is, that's what it all boils down to. When everything else is taken from you and everything else is gone, it all boils down to this. You know what, Lord, my trust and my faith is in you and I see your hand in it and if I've got a wife who isn't like Job's wife that isn't saying curse God and die in the process, but she's saying, you know what, I'm there with you and we're going to go ahead and we're going to see this thing through together. It all comes down to. It's simple. The problem is a sense of security. Too many of us have our security placed in, in, in things that we can't hold on to. And it's ridiculous and it doesn't make any sense and we need to recognize that and understand that. You know what, think about this. You know, I, I start jotting some things down and, you know, listen to me when I say this. Marriage cannot be based upon the uncertainty of riches, but it has to be on the security and the certainty of the person of God. Psalm 127.1 says this, Hey, you know what, unless the Lord builds the house, they're laboring in vain who try to build it. During the course of a lifetime, during the course of a marriage, you will lose your job. There will be corporate downsizing. There will be products that no longer anybody wants to buy, and there are going to be plants and factories that are going to shut down and close. There's going to be a loss of equity in your, in your property. There's going to be stock fluctuations. There are going to be investments that go sour, and you can't put your trust in any of this stuff. And let me, you know what? And some of you doubt that. Well, let, me just, let me just help you out here. Uh, this is a, a visual, visual aid. How many of you have ever lost a job, ever lost a house, ever lost a business, 
ever lost money in stocks, ever lost money or property, ever lost their equity, ever lost their savings because of an illness. How many of you have experienced that? Would you raise your hand? Oh, gee, everybody. Then why is this so hard for some of us to understand? Why, you know, see how, how silly we are sometimes? It's like, why is it so hard to understand? This is the truth. This is reality. This is a fact. This is the way that it is. And when God says, don't trust stuff, because stuff's not going to last, but trust me, there's a good reason for it. Because it's true. Number three. Greed. Problem of greed. Some of you say, well, I'm not greedy. Oh, really? How's your spouse feel about that? Talk to your mate about that. Because I don't know too many people say, I'm greedy. I'm greedy, 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 greedy. Cannot it's me. Greed, 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 written all over my face. Not too many people say that. I've never met a greedy person yet. And so what we need to do is understand some of the symptoms of greed. Let me go through some things very quickly. Symptoms of greed. Okay, number one. First symptom of greed, if you stop and think about it, is a desire to get rich. Instruct those. It says in 1 Timothy 6 again, verse 9, it says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation, a snare, many foolish and harmful desires, which will plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered even from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. The love of money. Money is amoral. It's neither good or bad. It's what you do with it. It's the love of it that's the problem. It's the desire to become rich. And you say, well, what do you mean? What's a sign of greediness? A sign of greediness is simple. That is, you've got to have more money for the sake of having more money. I don't know how many people you talk to want to make more money. Hey, you know what? You know, I need a raise in my job. Why do you need it? Because I just deserve more money. Really? I had a friend who wanted to build an apartment complex. He said, hey, look over this financial plan. Look over at the notes and all that and tell me what you think of it. I looked it all, all over and said, hey, you know, it looks sound from a financial standpoint. I said, why do you want to do it? He goes, well, you saw the numbers. I can make $200,000 if everything turns out okay. I said, great. What do you want to do with the money? And he looked at me like I was an idiot. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, what do you mean, what do I mean? What are you going to do with the money? Why do you need another $200,000? It was like, what? You can always use more money, but what do you need it for? Oh, I don't know yet, but I know I'm going to need it. I'll use it for something. See, we're like that. That's one of the things that I struggle with when people talk about buying lottery tickets. Why do you want to buy a lottery ticket? What, are you kidding me? The jackpot's $48 trillion million. What do you mean, why do I want to buy one? Man, and then it's always this. If, oh, can you imagine if you won that? Oh, $4.6 million a year after taxes for 20 years. Can you imagine? Oh, my. Well, what do you want all that money for? What are you, nuts? Everybody wants money. For what? I don't know. Because, you know what? If I had all that money, all the problems in my life would just go away. Yeah, and all the friends you never knew you had would just show up. And people look at you like, what are you talking about? Hey, money doesn't solve anybody's problems. It's a temporary solution. There's deeper problems that need to be resolved. Money, more money, making more money is going to resolve it. Greed. How do you know if you're greedy? I just want more money for the sake of making more money. Okay, great. What are you going to do with it? I don't know. I don't have a plan, but it doesn't matter. I know I need more. Oh, great. Okay. Uh, Get rich quick schemes. Oh, we got this idea, that idea. You know what? And they're always packaged like, this is a winner. Well, hello. Knock, knock. Anybody home? Has anyone ever come to you with an investment? They said, you're going to lose your butt on this. (laughs) Let me package it the way that it really is. You're going to lose your shirt. You're losing everything. It's all going down the toilet. But please give me your money. 
Oh, no, I don't know if I want to invest in that. Oh, no, it's a sure winner. Oh, let me show you all the numbers. Let me show you the prospectus. Let me flip open this. Oh, we got a 3D here. Put these three glasses on. Look at that. Oh, isn't that a nice looking community? Flip, 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 flip. Oh, this is great. Everybody's got a get rich quick scheme. Oh, if you do this, hey, you're going to get rich quick. We had guys on the ramps. I mean, we had last year, we had a guy call me and say, hey, I got an investment for you. Oh, you know, these guys, you know, and I'm telling them, oh, yeah, is it the Bolivian gold mine that, that I remember, like, in 1986, that somebody took $250,000 off of all you guys and you never saw them again? Which investment is this now that you're going to get me into? No, you're like, huh? Well, no, this is a great one. Well, what's this one? If you just give me $500 in two weeks, you're going to Oh, really? Oh, whose idea was this? Oh, well, this guy flew out from Atlanta. He's from my church back home. Well, praise God, an angel of mercy been sent out to California, and we're all going to get rich. Now, how's this work now? You give me $500, and in two weeks, I'm going to give you $10,000. Oh, great. Well, you know what? I'm going to build one of those little boxes, too. We'll stick a $100 bill on one end. We'll crank the handle, and out the other end is going to come a $1,000 bill. What in the world are you talking about? You know, that's illegal. You know, that's a scam, that's a Ponzi scheme. I don't know what other names that they call it, but basically here's the way it works. It's called musical, uh, it's called a musical money, uh, what is that, the musical chairs. That's what it's called. It's like, here, you give me $500, you keep running around the chairs, and if you get your $10,000, you get to hurry up and sit back down. Now, if you don't get your $10,000, then you're standing there like this. Well, that sounds like a good idea. I don't know where the $500 went. It's like, what are you, stupid? And it's like, oh, but What? Well, what is it? It's greed. Why do you need another $10,000? Oh, because I just need it. You make $1.5 million. Well, you know, you can never have enough. Just go, oh my gosh. Greed. That's all it is. Stick a dollar bill in and crank the handle and out comes 100 Ah, oh, life's problems will be solved. Greed. How about using credit cards? Oh, no, no, that's too personal. See, not me. No, I never stuck a $100 bill in a crank thing. Not me. No, I never gave anybody $500 that gave me $10,000. Credit cards? No, you're getting a little bit personal here today. Credit cards. Why do I say credit cards? Simple, because it's just based on greed. Most of it. What's the advertising? You can have it today, and you can pay for it for the next 27,000 years at $50 a month. And we'll just... Oh, in the meantime... Read the fine print on the back of your contract. What contract? Oh, the one that you sign when you get your credit card. The little one that says, and we're going to take 18% interest a year for the rest of your life. We're going to take all your children away from you, but you're still going to have to support them. We're just going to use them to go out and plow the fields and bring in the bacon. We're going to use them for our purposes, but hey, you know what? You can have that stupid CD player today. And by the time you're done, that CD player costs $199. It's going to cost you $19,000. And it'll be broke before you ever pay it off. But why do you want it today? Oh, because I'm not waiting. Why aren't you waiting? Because I'm greedy. Oh, no, that's not why. Just because I want it now. Because we've got to go Christmas shopping. Oh, okay. There's another thing, Christmas shopping. We're going to go buy something just for the sake of buying something. Let me just tell you something. Bottom line of all that is simply greed. Why? You're sucked into this whole thing. It's like one guy said, and he's here today, but I won't mention who you are. But he said, I'm trying to explain to my wife. I'm just trying to tell her. He says, I look at her and I say, but honey, what can I get you for Christmas? Because every day with me is a holiday. And every meal with me is a banquet. I said, yeah, let me know how that works. 
run it by me. We'll see what goes. Okay, great. You know, it's like, gosh, you know, can't we understand that, you know what, the bottom line of all of that is greed. We buy, and, and so many marriages fall apart. Why? Because somebody's buying something that the other person said, don't buy it. We don't need it. Yeah, but I want it. It was on sale. It was a great deal. Who cares? We didn't agree to buy it. Marriages fall apart all the time because somebody's greedy. That's just the way that it is. You have to be able to communicate and discuss it. You can't buy things because your maid says that, that they're going to get it anyway. You've got to talk these things out. Jesus warned about every form of greed. He said, beware of every form of greed. Luke chapter 12, read it yourself. For the guy who said, you know what, I'm making all this money and I don't have enough places to store it and I'm going to go store it all up. He said, beware of every form of greed. This form of greed was hoarding. Some of us are hoarders. You've got the one person that throws money around like birdseed and you've got the other person that can't reach in their pocket to get out money that's due somebody when they own the bill. You've got a hoarder. It's like all my security is based on my savings account and I'm not taking money out to pay my bills. What? Where did you come up with this? Because all my security is based on what I have and if I give away what I have, I won't have nothing left but God to trust. Oh. See, there's always one in the family that likes to hoard things up. Oh, we, gotta, we never have enough. Never have enough. Never have enough. Never have enough. But our kids don't have clothes. It doesn't matter. We don't have enough. Our kids don't have shoes. Doesn't matter. We don't have enough in the bank account. If I only have 10000 that's all I'd ever need. And then it becomes, I need 20000 Then I need 50000 Don't you realize how volatile business is? I need 100000 I need more, 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 more. And I'm never going to be satisfied. Never going to be content. Why? Because it's a symptom of greed. And the last thing is this. There's a fourth problem, and that is the problem of control. Some of us mistakenly believe that if we have the money, then we are in control. There's an old saying that says that he who has the gold rules. We've got a friend that plays professional sports, and I, I love his autograph. When he signs his autograph, all he puts on it is, God rules. God rules. Not he who has the gold rules. God rules. Why? Well, because maybe because God has all the gold. Because everything is His. And God rules. There are marriages that fall apart because one partner works and the other one stays at home and that person thinks because they make the money, they're in control. The friend of ours who said, but it's my money and I'll do what I want. What was it? It was a matter of not only a problem with ownership, but it was also a problem of control. As long as I have the money, I'll control what's going on. I'll control the, the shots. I'll control where we spend it. I'll control you and manipulate you. Oh, you want a little bit of money for something? Aren't, aren't I just, oh, magnanimous by giving you this $50 to do something else? Oh, thank you very much. And we begin to manipulate and control one another. It happens all the time. Not just in marriages, but it happens in business. It happens in the world that we live in. The person that has the money says, hey, you know what? I'll give it to you when I feel like giving it to you. No matter whether I owe it to you, no matter whether you've deserved it, that you've earned it. Think of all the company problems that happen because an employee gets dissatisfied because an owner says, I'll pay you what I want when I want to pay you, but we have an a deal. But it doesn't matter what the deal was. I don't like the way the deal turned out. But we have an agreement. So what? We had a commission structure. So what? We'll restructure. We'll re-territorize things. We'll go ahead and cut your territory. We'll do this or that. Why? Because we don't like how much money you're making and I'm, and I'm in control and I can manipulate you any way that I want because I've got the control. See, we need to understand something here very, very clearly and that is this. God has ultimate control. And we need to get back to this financial plan that he gives us in this book, which we'll talk about in two weeks, okay? So don't forget, we don't have class next week, but we'll see you in two weeks. And we'll put together a financial plan for 1996 
that'll change your life. But right now, just start with this. Number one, don't ever say that it's mine, because it's not. It's yours, and it's all under the, the reality that it's all God's. So neither one of you own it, regardless of who's, quote, making it. You're a team. You work together on how you handle it. You communicate. You discuss it. You talk about, uh, you talk about all of it. We'll get into more specifics. Don't ever put your security in things that are not secure, but trust in God who will never disappoint you and never let you down. As far as greed is concerned, what can you say? Don't be greedy. You know, wait on God to meet your needs. Don't use credit. Don't buy things today and expect to pay for them some other time. Wait on God. I mean, that's what it boils down to. Be satisfied and content with what he's given you. Thank him for what you have instead of always complaining about what you don't have or what somebody else has. You know, and as far as control, man, I, just, I would just beg you that if you try to control and manipulate other people, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your children, whether it's employees, who, whoever that it is, because you hold control over the resources that God has put into your hands, man, I just challenge you to consider what a tremendous responsibility that is. And remember the illustration of the bank teller. It's not yours. Don't be so possessive. Don't be so manipulative. But do what's right before God. And as it's been our custom for the last 12 years, I just want to extend on behalf of my wife, Linda, and our family, a Merry Christmas to y'all. And we'll see you in two weeks. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to just kind of touch bases lightly on some of the problems that we experience from a financial standpoint. God, we just uh, thank you for your word that's so relevant, so clear, um, for the direction that you give us through all of it. And we just thank you once again that uh, this is a week that we can look at uh, the gift that you've given to us, the gift of life eternally that's found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we never forget that's the purpose of what we celebrate as we come into this week. God, help us to, um, to be sensitive to your word as far as the areas of finance and, and like in every other area of life, to be willing to change the way that we think and the way that we act to do what you say is right. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.